Well, everyone having a great Lent? <laughs> Enjoying the season, really getting into the, into the mood? Yeah, that, that's great. <laughs> well, we have a number of rich passages this morning in our readings. And as I read them, I see three themes that uh, weave in and out of them. And I won't explore them in order. I'll kind of bounce back and forth and up and down and all around them. The first is the desert, the wilderness. And I think I need to explain something because today we have a particular ecological and climatological and geographical understanding of, of what we mean when we say a desert. It means a place where there's very little plant or animal life because it's either too dry, too cold, or too high in altitude. And usually when we say a desert, we mean a uh, we think of a hot place and usually a sandy place with lots of sand around. We usually think of the Sahara, for example. Although Antarctica and Mount Everest are deserts as well. A desert in our modern language is a place that's too hot, too dry, too cold, or too high to have a lot of life in it. That's how we use the word today. In the ancient world, people used words in various languages, of course, that we translate as desert, generally to refer to a place where no human beings either lived anymore because it was abandoned or could live because it was uninhabitable. For example, writing in Latin, St. Patrick, and I get points for being the first in March to mention St. Patrick. St. Patrick escapes slavery in Ireland and he, he walks across northern France and he calls it a desert, desertus in Latin, and even though I don't know Latin, I know desertus means desert. Of course, he doesn't mean a desert in a modern sense. Northern France has nothing to do with the Sahara. What he means is that it's been abandoned because the Germanic barbarians have driven the inhabitants away. Wilderness might be a better term today, a place where no or very few humans either do live or can live. The desert, the wilderness, a scary place, a place for wild animals, a lonely place, a place where there's no one to go to for help. A place where there's nowhere to go to buy food. A place where no one has planted food. A place where you sleep roughly outdoors. And a place in the ancient world traditionally held to only be inhabited by demons and devils. So the wilderness is our first theme. The wilderness, the desert. I think maybe a lot of us have felt like we've been in the wilderness for a while now. Over the last two years, we've seen a lot of loneliness and isolation, certainly. And you don't have to look too far to find plenty of bad stuff going on in the world. Makes us wonder if there's anywhere out there where the demons and devils don't inhabit and aren't active. Well, the second theme is the theme of identity. Two big questions it seems everybody is asking. Who are you and who am I? Yes. Those of you sitting up close may notice I crossed off two whole pages of notes. I had to cut something. <laughs> and I wrote just a few minutes before the sermon. It seems like we're infected with a false belief. Our identity is something we must discover on our own instead of something given to us by God. And I'll save the rest for another time. 
But our passages touch on that theme. Who are you and who am I? And finally, a third theme. Thank goodness, something upbeat. What God has done for us. And uh, these three themes, the reality of the wilderness, the false belief that we're on a quest to somehow search for our own identity, and the gift of what God has done for us all weave together through these passages. In our Old Testament reading, God has both sent the people into the wilderness and then he's brought them through the wilderness and into the land of promise. They've been outcasts, but God has given them a home and brought them safely to it. And in our passage, he tells them what they're going to say after they get there. And after they've been there the first year. And after they've planted crops they couldn't plant as they moved through the wilderness. And at the end of the harvest season, are reaping their own crops. After they've built towns and villages to settle in and to live in. And he foresees them holding a grand opening celebration of sorts. A big ribbon cutting to celebrate their first year in the land. And looking forward to this great big party the people are going to have, God tells them what they need to say. Because he knows what they will say if he doesn't tell them what to say. If he doesn't tell them what to to say, they will say something like this. They'll say, look at us. Aren't we great? Look at all we've accomplished. We are a great and powerful people. And what he does tell them to say He tells them, don't forget all the bad stuff you had to go through to get here. And don't forget the one who brought you here through it all. A wandering Aramean was my father. Aram was the no place place. It's not Egypt or Babylon or Greece. It's northern Syria. Abraham passed through there, lived there several years. Jacob lived there for several years. Biblical scholars want to argue whether it's Abraham who's referred to here or Jacob. It doesn't really matter. He says, we come from the no place place. We went down to Egypt. We became slaves. We were humiliated. The Hebrew people, I think, are the only people in the ancient world that I know of who in their story of their origin is that we used to be a humiliated people. Go to everybody else and the gods made us. We were powerful We were humiliated, we cried out, and God brought us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, when you have this big celebration, it's not going to be a retrospective of your greatest hits, but it's going to be about God's greatest hits at your lowest point. There's always a human desire to perform enough and be good enough to gather some kind of spiritual growth. Maybe in the ancient world, if I just buy more idols in the marketplace, or if I can get more crystals in the right arrangement around my house, or if I get really good reading the tarot cards. And before we start laughing, there's the Christian version of it. If I get all the spiritual gifts I can get, and I can earn merit badges by doing these spiritual exercises and all this ministry out there, then I'll become great and I'll gain spiritual power. And this is the temptation of Lent, isn't it? To collect more merit badges. To demonstrate our spiritual strength in some way. And over and over again in scripture we find that God acts powerfully when his people are the weakest. 
It's when the Hebrew slaves run away out into the wilderness that God will part the Red Sea. And piece by piece, we go through the Hebrew story and see this. God's reminding his people who they are, not what they want to be. They have no great aristocratic ancestry to boast of. They've not made their way by their own strength and wits, but they are God's people. And he loves them and he's kept his promises to them and he will keep his promises to them in the future and that is who they are. They're not the straggling losers their neighbors see nor the mighty victors they would like to see themselves as but they are who God says they are his people whom he loves and to whom he is faithful. And we can use that filter to look at our gospel reading this morning. The context of the passage helps us to see what Luke is drawing our attention to. The three most important things to keep in mind rereading scripture. If I accomplish nothing else in my priestly ministry. Location, location, location. You're reaching a pa- reading a passage of scripture. There's three different types of locations to look at. First is the location and time. What comes before and what ha- happens after. Is this before the fall of Jerusalem? Is this before the Babylonians move in? Is this after the law was given? That's pretty easy. The second is loca- location and place. The cultural heritage of the place. And that involves the economy and law and food and all those kinds of things. And you can spend the rest of your life learning all of that kind of stuff. The third location is the easiest dislocation in scripture. What comes before, what comes after. That's obvious because it's right there in the Bible in front of you. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 3 has the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is baptized. Luke tells us the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. That was echoed last Sunday in the Transfiguration reading. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The very next thing that happens, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The old Jerusalem was sent out into the wilderness. Now Jesus, the new Israel, is led out into the wilderness. And it's important to note that Jesus is not alone here. He's full of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit and in constant contact with the Holy Spirit because you'll notice at the end of our reading in verse 11, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And the very next thing he does, he goes to the synagogue, he reads that passage from Isaiah where where I've come to, to, to bring deliverance to the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed. And right here in the middle, we have this time of testing. I believe, Father Alex, that that passage from the synagogue and the poor and the prisoners and the blind, they press, that's the fourth sermon this year that that has come up. That may, that may be something for us to be paying attention to. Coincidences in our lives, uh, maybe the Lord's guidance, maybe. Maybe that's a passage to pay attention to. Anyway, that's the location in which we find the story. Jesus is baptized. He hears the God himself say, you are my beloved son, and he heads out into the wilderness. For 40 days he fasts. Luke is the gospel that tells us specifically that he eats nothing and is hungry. And at that point, Satan appears in order to tempt Jesus. Now, there are several ways to approach this passage which are less than helpful. 
One is to read it and to simply conclude that we should, well, memorize scripture. So that when we face Satan and face temptation, we can throw that scripture at the temptation and escape it. I was certainly taught that growing up. Well, I'm certainly not preaching against the memorization of scripture. I'm glad that Father Alex mentioned it a couple of sermons ago, actually, as an important spiritual discipline. And I'm not saying that using scripture to resist temptation is a bad thing to do. Jesus did it. Three times Jesus rebuffed Satan with scripture. And not just any scripture, but particular passages of scripture that any young Jewish boy would have learned. From Deuteronomy 6 through 8, it's the passage of scripture that Jewish boys memorize for their bar mitzvah. Every little Jewish boy memorizes this. So there is something to that, to use the scripture that everybody has memorized to defeat, to combat temptation. So it is there, but it is not the purpose of the passage. It's a lesson to draw, but if that's your only takeaway, you've missed something. Or I've also heard it taught this way, as like a three-step recipe for fighting temptation. First, what we just talked about, you memorize the words that proceed from the mouth of God. And then second, to resist temptation, you have to worship God really, really hard, like Jesus did. And then the third step in the recipe is don't test God, whatever that means. It's like warming up Stouffer's French bread pizza. Step one, remove the foil. Step two, heat on high for 30 seconds. Step three, rotate plate 90 degrees, cook on medium for two minutes, and ding, you resisted temptation. <laughs> and I really don't think that is the point. Not simply because recipe spirituality doesn't work, but because it completely ignores, I think, the purpose of the passage. The Bible isn't about you. This was a lesson that it took me a long time to learn. I was in my 40s before I learned it, before it finally dawned on me. I read uh, John Goldingay is the author who broke into my mind and changed my entire approach to scripture. If, if, if you want that name, I'll give it to you after the service. It took me a long time to learn because I was taught growing up the Bible was about me. And I was supposed to read it and figure out what I was supposed to do. But I'm not the main character in the Bible. The Bible isn't about me. Oh, it's got a lot of advice to give me. Pretty good advice. Don't get me wrong. Again, don't get me wrong. But I'm not the main character in the Bible. If I read a story and my main takeaway is what I need to do, I've missed the big point because the main character in the, of the Bible is Jesus. And this story is not about how we are able to resist the devil. The point of the story is not how we can resist the temptation. The story is about how Jesus does what we cannot do. It's about how Jesus completely and perfectly resisted the devil and he resisted the temptation, and he emerged righteous. And he did it, and he can do it. And we haven't, and we can't. Even though we're obligated to be righteous, we can't be righteous. We can't completely and perfectly resist the devil, and we can't completely and perfectly resist temptation, but Jesus could, and Jesus did. And he did it in part because he knew who he was. And he knew who he was because he knew who God said he was. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And Satan says, 
did God really say that you're his beloved son? Well, if you are the son of God, then prove it. And the temptation Jesus faces here is far bigger than bread or power or even recognition as the Messiah. Satan takes us back to the very first sin, the first temptation, all the way back in the garden. The serpent says to Eve, did God really say? And the first Adam failed the test in the garden. And now we see the second Adam passing the test in the wilderness. The language of the first Adam and the second Adam comes from Romans 5. The first Adam fails the test. The second Adam passes the test. In the wilderness, Jesus is in the wilderness because the guard has been devastated by sin and death. And the first Adam is driven out of the garden into the wilderness. And Jesus, the second Adam, goes into the wilderness and he faces the serpent, faces Satan, and emerges victorious. This is from St. Ambrose in the 5th century. He writes, It is worth remembering how the first Adam was cast out of paradise into the desert to see the second Adam coming back from the desert to paradise. Adam was thrown into the desert. Christ went into the desert for he knew where he could find the lost. So Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, is led to the desert on purpose to provoke the devil. For if Jesus had not fought the devil, the Lord would not have triumphed for me. The point of the story is not to emerge with three tips to avoid temptation. The point of the story is that going all the way back to Genesis 3, when God says that one from the seed of the woman will come who will crush the head of the serpent, the one we have been waiting for has finally shown up. As we sang just a few minutes ago, salvation has come. The one we've been waiting for has finally shown up and the one we've been waiting for is Jesus. The one who can defeat Satan is here because we can't defeat Satan by ourselves. If we take on Satan by ourselves, Satan will eat us for lunch. That's what God said in the garden. He said to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust. And then he turns to the man and woman and he says, and you are dust. And dust you will become. Satan will eat you for lunch if you try to face him by himself. But finally, the one who's come who will ultimately defeat death and the devil. We say things like, and we'll say it several times today as we continue our service, the point that Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness in exchange and here we see where Jesus' righteousness comes from. It comes from resisting the devil, resisting temptation, things that we cannot do. The point is not, look, learn these tips and you can do what Jesus did. The point is, look at what Jesus did for you that you can't do for yourself. It's common in Lent to think that what we really need to do is try harder we really need to try to be more holy. We really need to be better. And don't misunderstand me, we do need to be more holy. But that is not what we really need. What we really need is Jesus and his righteousness. Because God tells us who we are, that we're sinners 
who are loved more than we could ever imagine. Lent is a time to remember this. That we're sinners, yes, we're sinners, but we are loved more than we could ever even picture. Many believers take on spiritual disciplines during the Lent, during Lent. They might add on morning and evening prayer. They might add on fasting. They might add on this or that or the other thing. And it may surprise you when I tell you the point of adding on spiritual disciplines is not to succeed at them. That's the way the world looks at things. The point is not to make us more holy by being perfect and by keeping our promises perfectly. The point is to recognize our spiritual weakness and our need for a savior. That's what we said in our collect for today, praying to God the Father, as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each of us find you mighty to save. If we fail at our spiritual disciplines, let's be honest, when we fail at our spiritual disciplines, the worst thing we can do is to try to make it up. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times that has happened. I'll say something profound and... (laughs) When we fail at spiritual disciplines, the worst thing we can do is try to make it up. You're laying there in bed and your eyes are getting heavy and all of a sudden you say, I didn't do evening prayer. I'll do it twice tomorrow. (laughs) You're never going to catch up with God's demand for righteousness. Go ahead and give up on trying to catch up. Don't say, I'll do it twice tomorrow. Say, God, I messed up. That's why I need your righteousness. The best thing you can do is cry to the Lord and say, you were right all along. I need you because I can't do it. As our own passage tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not those who keep the spiritual disciplines through Lent will be saved, but those who know they need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. One day, He will return, and this wilderness we live in will be restored back to the garden it was planned to be, not because we are righteous, but because Jesus is. And if you believe that Jesus lived the righteous life you should have lived, and he died the death you should have died, and that God raised him from the dead, and that he is Lord, then you will find God mighty to save. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.